A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, I'm Freddie Sayers, and this is Unheard. Back in March, everyone's world suddenly changed. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. So on day one of lockdown, we launched Lockdown TV, a place where we could gather experts, scientists, writers, politicians, thinkers, to try to help us understand what was going on in this strange moment and what kind of world we were going to get at the end of it. And now, due to popular demand, here we are in podcast form. Welcome to Lockdown TV. I'm very excited about today's guest, uh, one of the most influential living philosophers, perhaps the most influential living philosopher. Uh, he's called Peter Singer, and he's joining us from Australia. Hi, Peter. Hi, Freddie. To give a bit of an uh, introduction, over the last five decades, uh, your ideas have been enormously influential, not just in the academy, but out there in public policy as well. Your ideas about uh, animal rights from your famous book, Animal Liberation in 1975, are now much more commonplace than they were. Ideas about effective altruism and how we should best be helping other people who we don't know uh, now dominate the way big philanthropy is organized. I mean, there's so much that we'd like to talk about, but the first topic is that your your journal, which you are one of the founding members of the editorial board, the Journal of Controversial Ideas, had its first issue out uh, this past month. Um, and I just wanted to, to look into that. So this is a journal that is launched to, I guess, go against cancel culture. Is that fair? Yes, I suppose that's, that is fair. I mean, we weren't thinking of it particularly with that label when we started talking about it a few years ago. But we were certainly thinking of episodes where uh, philosophers who had published controversial ideas had been threatened, um, harassed, uh, sometimes personally threatened, death threats, for example. I've had death threats. Uh, Francesca Minerva, who was another co-editor, has had death threats. Um, and sometimes their career was likely to be harmed uh, by the backlash to those articles. So that was what we were worried about. We were worried about the fact that uh, people, particularly more junior, untenured academics, would be intimidated against publishing something controversial for fear that this could do harm to their career or personally that they would get such abuse that they would not be able to handle it. So you're happy with the concept that cancel culture does exist then? You wouldn't deviate from that? There's certainly a culture which, um, yes, uh, harasses, threatens, intimidates people against speaking and sometimes prevents them speaking. Have you been cancelled, would you say? Yes, but long before that term was invented, um, I was uh, prevented from speaking in Germany in 1989 um, and again 
for some years after that, and also in uh, Austria. Um, so that was um, for different reasons. That was about my views about uh, euthanasia, particularly uh, the idea that parents should have the option of ending the lives of severely disabled newborn infants. And um, that was opposed both by the Christian right and by um, the disability movement or some elements of the disability movement. Because actually I was originally invited to speak at a conference of parents of disabled children. Um, but then one section of that group caused uh, such a stir that um, uh, the invitation was withdrawn. And then subsequently some other invitations I had to speak in in Germany were withdrawn as well. So I guess you're, you're sort of unusual in that the cancellations you've received over the decades, and as you say, you were being, there were cancellation attempts long before that was a phrase, have often been coming from the right um, because of your strong views on euthanasia, um, abortion, and those, the sacredness of human life, those kinds of things that traditionally the right uh, gets more upset about. But do you think it's fair to say, looking more globally, that most of the anti-free speech or cancellation attempts now come from the left? I think if you're talking, when you say looking globally, I think if you're talking about um, Western cultures, yes, that's true. If you're talking globally, then, then it depends a bit on what you think of as the left, but obviously, um, you know, right-wing religious conservative governments, Islamic governments, for example, pre prevent freedom of speech. Um, China prevents freedom of speech. I don't know whether you consider them left, but uh, yeah, so it's it's much more diverse. But but I agree here in, you know, the countries that I'm most familiar with in uh, the United States, United Kingdom, much of Europe, Australia, um, the majority of those are from the left, not all of them still, um, but, but the majority, I think. Are. Do you ever have uh, the feeling, um, having been considered a figure of the left for uh, all of these decades, do you ever have the feeling that ideas that you have championed and have got going have now in some way kind of run out of hand and that you're in some way being hoisted on your own petard with some of these concepts? Uh, no, I don't think that because I've always been an advocate of freedom of speech. Um, so, and in fact, you know, I think freedom of speech has been something that the left traditionally has championed. So I've defended um, freedom of speech against charges of blasphemy, for example. You know, I'm not sure. Is it still an offence? Is blasphemy still an offence in the UK? It certainly it was. Maybe on the statute book. I don't know. Yeah, I know nobody is going to get prosecuted for it. Um, uh, and pornography. So, you know, when I was an undergraduate, we held an event uh, in favour of freedom of speech in which we read extracts from banned books such as Lady Chatterley's Lover or The Group or the Kama Sutra. Um, so in that sense, you know, I, I thought this was being progressive to defend freedom of speech, speech against this kind of censorship. Um, but what's happened is that, um, not so much my ideas, but, but there are different ideas that are held by people on the left who see themselves as defending people who are underprivileged, mar marginalized, disadvantaged, um, and see, you know, want to extend that defense, not just to improving their social and economic position and, and preventing discrimination against them, but also making sure that they're not offended by remarks that are made. And that brings that element of the left into conflict with ideas of freedom of speech. Because if merely the fact that you might offend somebody is a grounds for preventing you speaking, 
there's not a lot of freedom of speech left, really. It's, it's hard to have strong, controversial views that aren't going to offend someone. I'd love to dig into a couple of the themes that people get most upset about and are the kind of hot front on these current uh, culture wars. Um, the first is gender. Uh, you've got a couple of articles in the new edition uh, that touch on gender, uh, edition of Journal of Controversial Ideas. And I wonder where you stand on some of these thoughts around gender now, because in a way, you could argue that the whole concept that you can rethink your gender or that by purely rational thought, we can overcome uh, prejudices such as concepts of gender difference. It's quite a Peter Singer style thought. You could trace a line from some of your uh, earlier writings to that kind of thinking. Um, And now you're having to produce a journal. No, not, to... Sorry, can you can you spell out this line that you want to trace? Because I'm not quite sure how it connects the, with, the con- with ideas I've expressed. So, so the, the concept that using your rational mind, you can overcome differences, you can overcome the prejudices, the impositions of society, such as differences between genders, is a, is, is a utilitarian, rational thought, isn't it? It has a the feeling of some of your writings, for example, um, your most famous, perhaps, for your animal liberation ideas, that you know, w- by logic, we should really treat all sentient beings with care, not just the ones we care closely about. So there's a there's a, a sense that the virtue consists of rejecting the kind of easy, natural, prejudiced way that we think oh, about absolutely. life. And we absolutely, we need to think. Yeah. We need to think. Greater, right? Do, do you see right, that? Right, but I think I'm. I, I would consistently hold that we ought to reject prejudices against transgender people. That um, you know, if people want to um, dress differently, if they want to uh, give themselves a different name, um, and so on, um, we should not discriminate against them because they do that. Uh, you know, we should welcome them as members of society. We should uh, obviously. Not discriminate against them in employment or housing or, or anything else like that. Um, that's a, that's a separate question from whether they then are in every respect of the gender that they say they are. I suppose it's more a, a, a mood that you know, if if one is put into the world in a uh, in a way that seems given, um, and you know, there is a sort of natural order of things. Um, is is the more I guess it's the conservative view that one should more sort of roll along with that, whilst the more progressive idealist view would be that we need to rethink that and be thinking of first principles and rejecting structures, traditional patriarchal structures, and um, reorganizing society in a grander way. So I suppose it's there's a there's a mood connection there, and a lot of these ultra progressives on university campuses um, are are planning to rethink society, rethink definitions of gender from first principles, in, which has the same sort of level of ambition uh, as your writing. But they're quite specific in which ones they're willing to rethink. Uh, and actually, one of the episodes that led uh, Jeff, Francesca and me to think about the, the need to get the journal going uh, was an episode when a philosopher, Rebecca Tuval, argued that if we think that people can change their gender by identifying with their gender, the gender that they want to be, and then they are of that gender, 
then why don't we think that people can do the same with their race? But progressives don't think that people can do the same with their race. In fact, there was an episode where a woman called Rachel Dolezal, who'd been working for the uh, National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, a sort of organization working for African-Americans, uh, identified as being herself as being African-American. And, and when it was shown that she was not in the biological sense of African-American descent, um, she was you know, humiliated, fired from her job, exposed. Um, and and the left seems to think that that was correct. Uh, and when 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 Rebecca Tuval said, "Well, why is one correct and the other not?" Hundreds of people, generally on the left, in fact, I'd say probably all on the left, signed a petition for the paper to be retracted. So, do you think there's a a, a parallel to be drawn then between gender and, and race that we we came onto race just then? That these these are ambitious idealist ideas that have a, a root in a kind of um, utilitarian thinking and then have somehow gone too far or have, have departed rationality and, and become fundamentalist in some way. Is that how you see the state of play with those two issues? See, I'm not necessarily saying that um, being able to change your, your gender um, is going too far. Um, what I think is going too far is trying to shut down people who raise the question of whether uh, a declaration that you're of a certain gender is enough to make you of that gender. Um, and you know, that's what's been happening. But, um, but, but for me, the, the, the bigger issue is that if you criticize this, you're immediately labeled as being a transphobic, right? Um, as, what, as what happened to, to JK Rowling. Right? And she was very specific in saying, you know, dress how you like, sleep with whoever you want to, Call yourself by whatever name you want to, but don't try to get somebody fired for raising the question of whether, in fact, you are a, a person of that of that gender or sex. You know, I guess she was thinking of that biological sex as being something that is still there and doesn't change from the identification. And on the race issue, do you think it's thinking around that? I mean, that so-called critical race theory that gets a lot of airtime. What's your stance on that? Because again, to a to an untrained observer, part of it seems sort of like it might be, belong in a Peter Singer universe, in that it's again trying to forcibly eradicate differences between groups through through um, enlightened thinking. Um, but on the other hand, it now seems to not be rational at all, and it's almost has there's almost a religious connotation with some of these concepts of whiteness that might seem like original sin and so on. Where do you feel that debate has got to? I think it is, it, 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 it can be taken too far, uh, clearly. And I think um, the idea that, uh, you know, if you're white, particularly if you're a white male, that somehow this discredits you, more discredits everything you say, which does seem to be what the implication that some people are saying. Um, that doesn't seem to me at all a defensible view. Um, and in general, in fact, I think we should look at you know, what people say in terms of how well argued is this? You know, do the ideas hold up to critical scrutiny? Not in terms of what's the race or ethnicity or, or sex of the person who is saying it. So, so do you think there's a sense in which it's, become, it's come full circle then, that what started as a, a virtuous sort of program uh, of seeking to 
minimize differences and, and help groups that were less advantaged has almost ended up focusing on those differences and making them bigger. Um, it's it's um, suggesting that they are bigger than than you might you know in a more balanced view see. You might see it as certainly something that exists, but something where there's countervailing tendencies that push in other directions, and you might recognise significant progress that has been made over recent decades. Um, and I think often people who describe themselves as proponents of critical race theory make racism just so all-encompassing as an explanation and uh, don't really recognize the the genuine and, and helpful efforts that have been made to make society less racist and to provide more opportunities for people irrespective of their race. What about the role of, of media and social media in all this? I mean, you, your journal famously allows people to submit anonymously or pseudonymously uh, articles um, in order to avoid the kind of deluge of hate and um, sort of retribution that they might otherwise get for touching on controversial ideas. Are you worried that in the social media world, some of that anonymity is actually making things worse and, and the conversation um, is getting unhelpful because people are remote and, and anonymous and able to kind of hide behind that? Uh, certainly, I think the fact that people can comment anonymously on the social media um, often makes them uh, more abusive and you know the, you have less constructive discussions than you might have if they were not. But, but the difference is that ours is an academic journal. Uh, our, all these papers go out for peer review um, and uh, if they're too abusive or polemical, that's one of the things that we say in our call for papers and in a discussion of what we're doing. We're not really interested in, in just polemics. Um, we, we want people to, to argue, to reason, to provide evidence, um, and we have experts in the field to assess whether they're doing that or not. So uh, we're not in danger of um, descending to the level of Twitter uh, or other social media where people can shelter under anonymity and have nobody judging the standard of what they're saying. But you're not, you wouldn't side with those people who want to see more um, censorship or more curation of social media sites. Um, for example, we had Facebook upholding the ban on Donald Trump being able to take part in the largest social network in the world. What would your position be on that? Well, I think, I think Trump obviously ought to be subject to um, his to fact-checking, and, and uh, um, the media do often indicate that the facts in a statement are, are inaccurate. Um, but I think I would probably have, have let Trump go back on. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm, in that sense, I'm a defender of, of freedom of speech, even if it is, is inaccurate. And so is that, something, I mean, is that something to worry about in the context of this, that we now have these hugely powerful technology platforms that take quite a clear political view uh, and essentially condone censorship of, of one side of that divide. Is that something you're worried about, even though you may find yourself on the other side at the moment? Yeah. Um, I mean, the problem is that they're too close to being, to being monopolies, I think, because 
there's there's never been anything wrong with having a publication in which you're only going to publish uh, views that support your particular set of views. You know, you you can you can have uh, Christian journals, you can have Muslim or Jewish journals, you can have socialist journals, you can have libertarian journals. Nobody's going to say you can't publish that, and you could do a a Twitter or Facebook uh, in which you have that particular bent, and maybe that's where we'll end up. Um, I think a bigger problem actually has been that um, there is no there is no one that you can actually sue for defamation um, on these social media as you can with newspapers. Right? If newspapers publish something, even if they're publishing an article by someone else, they're responsible. Um, and if it is in fact defamatory, then a court can. Um, award damages against them, but you can't award damages against uh, Twitter or Facebook, and so people can say these absurd things, um, uh, uh, very damaging things, and and there's no realistic legal remedy. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Would you support some ideas that are out there of trying to make? I, I, I support the idea of saying saying yes that those, those those platforms ought to be able to be held legally responsible for opinions that they publish. May I ask about a, a, a slightly more general idea for a moment, Peter, which is that the the political application of some of your thoughts over the past decades. My my contention, which I'm ready for you to bat down is that some of the populist backlash that we've seen in the past few years has actually been a reaction to ideas of universalism, that utilitarian ideas of universalism that you are one of the most famous proponents of. Um, and that the kind of the world that we learned to inhabit over the past 30 years was one in which governments 
thought that virtue looked like treating the whole world the same as much as they could. So we had this denigration of nation states towards larger supranational groups or technical bodies. Um, and we had the open free market uh, sort of surrounding the entire world. And there was much more of the sense which, you know, in theory, you would have, I think, that think was good, which is that we treat all human beings the same and we don't have preferential treatment to those closest to us. And in some way, from 2016 onwards, there has been a big rejection of that. Um, and from Brexit to Trump to all of the other populist revolts around the world, there was a sense that, no, we want to be able to have preference for those people we know best. And we don't think it's uh, in any way morally bad to choose the, the things we love and the culture we love over the more remote um, parts of our species. It, do you think there's any truth in that? So I think there's some truth in the fact that ideas that um, I wrote about in my book, One World, uh, the first edition of which was published uh, in 2002, I think, um, where it seemed like the world was opening up um, uh, to you know, more global institutions where the International Criminal Court had been founded, which meant that uh, people could not hide if they committed crimes against humanity or genocide. There was an international body that could try uh, try them. Um, there was somewhat more free trade, which was controversial, but I think had some some benefits. Uh, there was um, the idea of uh, a responsibility to protect peoples against genocide um, so that uh, you could intervene to prevent that, um, as with the uh, NATO intervention in Kosovo and uh, the, the UN intervention in Libya. Um, and uh, things did start to go uh, a bit backwards after that, um, as you say, because of the rise of some populist movements. Uh, and um, in particular, the Brexit vote and the election of Donald Trump were certainly setbacks for that. Um, I've never been sort of absolutist about these things. For example, I've never been an advocate of open borders, although in theory, I think a world with open borders would be great. But as a matter of political pragmatism, I've never thought we were ready for that. Um, I didn't think people were ready to accept unlimited immigration uh, or even the acceptance of all asylum seekers who are able to set foot on shore. That didn't seem to me to be something that people could accept in a world in which there was so much more mobility than there was when the Geneva Convention was originally signed. Is that failure to be able to accept that world, um, is that a moral shortcoming of people then? If that both shown, as you put it, in the Brexit and Trump votes, but also in our inability to want to open our borders and treat everyone equally, is that, is that a moral shortcoming um, that we should regret? Or is that a fact of human nature that we should celebrate? I think it is a moral shortcoming. I think it's both a fact of human nature and a moral shortcoming. I think it's a fact of human nature that we should not celebrate because it shows that we have an element of xenophobia, um, you know, fear or hatred of strangers in our, in our nature. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, I accept that that is part of our biological nature. I don't, I don't deny that. And um, reason and ethical argument is not always powerful enough to overcome um, some of these facts of our nature. Uh, we have to accept that. I wrote a book many years ago called A Darwinian Left, in which I urged the left 
to accept that Darwin was right about the evolution of human nature and Karl Marx was wrong because Karl Marx thought that there is no human nature, that it's all shaped by the uh, economic basis of, of society. And it would change that if you eliminated private ownership um, and had social ownership of the means of production, you would also have humans with a much more social nature. I think that was a mistake. And I think the left by and large probably now has abandoned that. But um, uh, certainly the traditional Marxist left uh, seemed to cling to that for a long time. So you would then stand against ideas that come out of the left from the world of philosophy or from the academy and are then put into practical politics. You would reject those that you worry would be overly optimistic about human nature then. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So, for example, if the left says on the basis of the sort of universal cosmopolitanism that I, uh, that I like, if they say we should accept everybody who arrives at, on our borders, um, if they're seeking asylum, we should accept them. Um, that would be wonderful. But in the, given the way people are, at least in, in, at this particular time, um, that is going to mean the election of Donald Trump, the election of Boris Johnson. It's going to mean Brexit. It's going to mean the election of uh, regimes like, like we have in, in Hungary and in Poland to some extent. Uh, and I don't support those regimes. And they, not only are they bad for people who want to refugees who want to get into those countries, uh, they're, they're terrible for climate because these people, you know, obviously also um, don't really take action about climate change or even deny that climate change is real. Um, they're, they're, they stir up racial hatred, as certainly Donald Trump did, um, and uh, they don't really care that much about underprivileged people either. Uh, so, you know, you have to think about the cost of saying this is the right policy, therefore my political party or the political party I support should adopt it because if that means they're, they're going to lose um, and they're going to lose out to some nasty right-wing government, that's not a good result. So you want a, a more clear-eyed, more pragmatic um, left, I suppose? I, th I think, I think you, you, you have to be pragmatic, yes. Perhaps the most salient example of this kind of tension in recent years was the refugee crisis of 2015 in Europe, um, where we had huge numbers of refugees coming out of the Syria conflict. And Angela Merkel famously um, said, you know, we can, we can handle it, we can take it, let them come um, in Germany. And they uh, welcomed over a million refugees. Uh, my own country, Sweden, uh, took um, well over 100,000, I think over 200,000 refugees during that year. This is a country of, of 9 million people. At the time, that was animated by just your kind of thinking, wasn't it? It was your famous 1981 book, The Expanding Circle, of how we should, be, we should have care for those in, beyond our immediate proximity, and that hopefully the progression of society is to have more and more care to those further and further away. It was that sort of impulse that animated those decisions. And at the time, it was a hugely exciting decision on the left that uh, Angela Merkel made. It now seems possibly to have fallen foul of the rule you just gave, which is that it was over optimistic about human nature, and it's produced a backlash. Were you in favor of it at the time? And what do you think about it now? So I was concerned about it at the time, actually. And although you're right that in one sense it was part of the view that I hold, um, Merkel in particular 
um, and a lot of people supporting asylum seekers said they have a right to asylum. You know, once they set foot on our shore, they have a right to asylum. Um, and rights views are, of course, contrary to utilitarian views. They don't consider the consequences. They just say, if you have a right, I must not violate that right. I must protect you in that right. And so I was concerned that this was a rights-based view that was not taking account of the possible consequences and might end up going too far. And interestingly, Merkel, having made that dramatic statement, which, by the way, I really, in one sense, I really admire, given Germany's racist past, this was the biggest break with that kind of racist past that Germany has had, um, you know, even bigger than Willy Brandt's famous gesture of kneeling before the Holocaust um, memorial. Um, so uh, I admired it in that sense, but um, I was worried about it. And, and Merkel has now really backed away from it. All right? she's, she's not saying, and nobody in Europe is now saying, we must accept every asylum seeker who sets foot on our shore, or we must you know, give them due, admit them and give them due process and judge their asylum claim. Um, uh, asylum seekers are being kept out of the European Union now. So but do you now think I, it was I a guess, mistake looking back? Well, I think actually Germany has done pretty well. I mean, it looked dangerous because the uh, alternative for Germany, the right-wing party, did pick up a large number of votes and you know, that could still have bad consequences, but it, let's hope that it peaked and and won't be so big again. Um, and it may be that Germany has accepted. And of course, it was a wonderful thing for the Syrians whose country had been devastated um, and who now got a safe place to live, um, whether it was Germany or Sweden um, or wherever. Uh, so if, if, in fact, the consequences for Germany are not terrible, then okay. Um, I mean, even in Sweden, we've seen a big upsurge in the very right-wing party, the Swedish right, Democrats. Right, but you haven't had governments like the governments in Hungary or um, or Poland, um, which have taken yet okay, which have taken over, um, and you haven't had consequences like uh, like Brexit either, right? Neither. Uh, I think Poland has talked about leaving the EU, but it hasn't and probably won't, I think. So it's quite a, it's quite a sophisticated lesson you're giving people then. If, the, if we want to follow the Peter Singer view on politics, it's that we should aspire to a sort of universalism and we should do our best to treat people in faraway places that we don't have immediate knowledge of with as close to equal care as people that we have in our immediate proximity, but we need to constantly have a mind to the practical implications of these policies and the limitations of human nature. So don't get too idealistic because then you get in trouble. Is that? That's right, I think. Yeah, yeah. It, certainly in a, in a democracy, you can't get too far ahead of where people are. You have to bring people along with you. Um, and, and I think you can do things to do that. And some Sometimes people, political leaders should do more than they are doing to bring people along with them. But, but you do have to pay attention to where they are at and not get too far ahead of them. I guess the, the, the difference that would still remain then between you and people more on the right would be that people on the right would actually celebrate that instinct to prioritise the people closest to you in some way. That, you know, the that's dis right. The yes, distinctness that's of right. cultures is a particular joy and that it's actually virtuous to look after your people. Yes, I think that's that's right. And 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 perhaps some of them would say, and what's more, our particular people, our culture is better than that of other people, and that's why we want to preserve it. Um, 
and uh, you know, I don't want to support that kind of thinking. I want to support um, more openness to other people. I want to support cultural diversity. Um, you know, I have no objections to people keeping up their cultural traditions. In fact, I think that's part of a, a multicultural society that people do that, but um, not in the sense of saying we want to keep the others out. Um, and, you know, and I think, for example, I, you know, I, I was born in Australia and when it was a very white Anglo-Saxon or Anglo-Celtic nation, really dominated by people of, from the British Isles. Um, and, uh, you know, it's now extremely diverse. We have many different cultures. We have, uh, you know, it's, it's a much more exciting and interesting place, I think, than it was uh, when I was growing up here because of that diversity. Let's talk about your latest book, Peter, um, The Golden Ass. I say it's yours. You've edited and, and um, given an afterward to it. Um, this is quite a distance from the political things we'd, we've just been talking about in that it's a new translation of a Roman novel. That's correct, yes. Um, it's distant except that I was kind of hinting at it when I said I can't turn myself into a donkey um, just by identifying with a donkey because that's what the book is about, The Golden Ass. Um, it's, uh, there it is. Um, There's an illustration, by the way, by uh, Russian twin sisters, uh, Anya and, and Varya Kendall, who have done uh, uh, a range of illustrations throughout the book. Um, yeah, but as you said, it's a Roman novel. And to me, that's already a remarkable thing, because when I went to school, I wasn't told about Roman novels. I was told that the first novel was Gulliver's Travels, which I now recognize as a very uh, Anglo sort of viewpoint, because obviously Don Quixote is 100 years earlier than Gulliver's Travels, and that's a novel. Um, and then when we really get beyond Europe, um, the tale of Genji, uh, the Japanese 11th century uh, work, is a novel um, and is much older than uh, anything that was produced in, in Europe after that, you know, well, older than Cervantes anyway. Uh, but, but this is a novel um, which was written in the second century of the Common Era. Um, Apuleius was born in the reign of the Emperor Hadrian and, and died probably in the reign of Marcus Aurelius. Uh, and it seems to me absolutely undeniable that it's a novel. It, it, it did, does have in the full original version some uh, embedded stories in it. So it's about a man who, who gets turned into a donkey because he dabbles in magic rather foolishly and has a bit of bad luck and can't get, uh, becomes a donkey and can't get out of it for some time. Um, and, so is that, uh, that, is that but, what attracted you to it then? That it, for someone who has invented the concept of speciesism and wants us to realise that that animals are conscious creatures too, the Romans got there first. Yes, that's right. And and actually had enough empathy with with or, or Apuleius had enough empathy with a donkey to describe uh, various forms of cruel treatment that donkeys were enduring in the Roman Empire, from from you know, having to carry heavy loads, getting beaten with sticks to occasionally um, being the victim of purely sadistic pranks, but also being effectively a, a slave, um, being chained to a, a millstone and having to turn the millstone, walk round and round endlessly in circles with human slaves uh, uh, beating him if he if he doesn't do this. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, there's a lot of empathy with animals, and that was certainly what first attracted me to it. What should we interpret uh, from this new departure? I mean, you've been at the kind of 
bleeding edge of controversies, philosophical and political for decades, are you just tiring of the whole thing and thinking it's now got too angry, too divided, and you don't want any part of it, and now the next period is going to be diverted towards literature? No, um, you shouldn't assume that, um, because the next thing that I, the next major thing probably that I'm going to be doing is revising Animal Liberation, which uh, the, the the basic text of which is now, well, it was originally published in 1975. Then I fully revised it in 1990. Then I stuck on a few new prefaces and did some minor changes, but it really needs a full revision. And unfortunately, that's going to be angry again because although things have improved to some extent, they haven't improved nearly enough. Um, I think what you should uh, take from the fact that I've edited and published uh, The Golden Ass is that occasionally I, I like to lighten up and to have a bit of fun. And this is certainly the least serious book that I've published. Let me give you a final question, Peter Singer. You're, you've been involved in these debates for a long time. Uh, you're an um, ethicist. Your, your topic is the morality of, of human decisions. Do you think people are getting better? or worse? Or are we exactly as good or bad as we always were? I think we're getting better. I remain, you mentioned that 1981 book of mine, The Expanding Circle, which suggested that, that there is a tendency in uh, human societies looking at it very much over the long term for us to look more widely at the beings who matter so that we move beyond our own tribe to uh, larger groups, you know, groups of uh, language speakers or ethnics uh, people ethnically like us to to a, a nation to um, maybe members of our religion uh, and then to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the idea that all human beings have certain basic rights or should be not be treated in certain ways um, and I've argued with animal liberation that we should go beyond that, that that's not enough the species boundary is also not one and we should expand that to all sentient beings. Um, and, you know, in, in, I think we're, we're actually making progress in this direction because it's not as if we actually, with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, as if everybody had these rights, but we are focusing on expanding that and trying to improve things for everybody, including people who are less privileged. Uh, I think that the effective altruism movement that I've played a role in is, is doing that and is continuing to do that and we'll get more people on side. Um, I think that despite the fact that, as you pointed out, from 20, around 2016, things went a bit backwards in terms of global institutions, I'm hoping that that's over. You know, it's significant that Biden, more or less, as soon as he was elected, said the United States is going to go back and rejoin the Paris Agreement. Um, I think that's incredibly important that uh, the world's nations work to uh, reduce climate change as, as, as much as possible. So I'm, I'm somewhat hopeful that, you know, this is, was like a blip, that, um, that things went dipped for a while in, in the scale of expanding the circle, but that the movement is again upwards. So you're, um, you're a and I'm sure, I'm sure there'll be more dips, but I, I'm hoping that that's the general trend. So you're a progressive so, idealist to the last then, Peter. The, the last few de de years hasn't revised your thinking. Yes, except that, as, as you yourself said, I'm the kind of idealist who is tempered by realism and by pragmatism. Um, but, but yes, my ideals are certainly still in that cosmopolitan direction. Peter Singer, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation.
That was Peter Singer, the eminent philosopher, joining us from Australia. He has uh, helped to set up the Journal of Controversial Ideas to draw a line against that part of the left that is pushing back on free speech and trying to cancel people for talking about controversial things. Um, I put it to him that some of that difficulty and some of the political crises of the past few years have actually come from his kind of philosophy, the kind of ideas that he has championed for decades. And I would say he gently rejected that uh, and insisted that his ideals were the right ones, but they need to be applied with pragmatism. Really interesting to hear from him. Thanks to him for joining. This was Lockdown TV. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.